Love it, don't you? Huh? G- judgment is looming and grace prevails. <laughs> it feels good, doesn't it? Feels like the way God does business, doesn't it? It would seem like it. My, we have just experienced high worship. We haven't, uh, and we've been so blessed. Thank you, Evan. Thank you, Sanctuary Choir. And really riching. And um, Will and Tristan and um, Melanie. <laughs> Melanie, Melanie, I'm missing somebody. Barbara, thank you. Very kind. It's so good to be in my home church. I don't often get a chance to do that, but it's such a pleasure to be in worship with you today. I'd like to invite you to pray with me as we open God's word. Lord of heaven, it's because your grace is rich in our lives and we have the privilege to grasp it again and again. It's why we're here, to taste of that water, that living water. And so we welcome your spirit in Jesus' name, amen. When I was 12, 11, 11, 12-ish, my, um, my backyard, we had a, a very large tree. It was a sycamore tree, and uh, it was probably 70 feet tall. Maybe not quite as twice the size of this building, but it had these huge branches, and they went off in different directions, and um, my dad helped me tie a swing, big, thick rope of uh, jute rope, to, uh, about a 25 or 30 foot length of rope tied to a big branch, and we would get on that thing, big knot at the bottom, and we would swing on that thing, and I got really good. I mean, I could go really high. Our house was an old kind of a farmhouse without the farm, but it was a uh, stone plaster-covered three-floor house. My bedroom was on the third floor, and I could swing high enough to hit the roof with my hand of the third floor. That's how high we would go. Oh, it was awesome. My mother was crazy when she saw us doing that. Will you come down? Well, that was fun. But we had another swing, uh, which was very different It was made of nylon rope, much thinner, kind of stretchy. And my dad took some heavy plastic. He put some old rags and some old clothes inside this bag, this plastic thing, whatever it was. And then he put a burlap bag over it. And then he tied it over and around and around and around. And that became the seat. We didn't have a tire. We had this burlap bag filled with rags, which became the seat for our swing. And so we would swing on that thing. And the branch kind of moved a little bit. So it was kind of like a bungee ride we were riding this swing. This one went that way and the other big one went that way. And we were just like yard apes in our backyard there, you know? You've heard that term maybe? I don't know. Maybe it originated in Pennsylvania. I'm not sure. But if it did, it probably started on 3rd Avenue in Trap, Pennsylvania, where I grew up. We were just like crazy there. One day I'm up in this pine tree. I'm going to swing on this bag swing thing, you know, and the way it worked is we would uh, climb this pine tree, the lowest branch coming straight out was about 18 feet off the ground, okay, so it's way up there, and we nailed boards to the trunk of this tree so we could climb up and get in position, and then somebody would throw the swing up to you, and then you kind of inch out there on that branch, and you kind of grab a hold of that little thin rope, wrap that burlap bag between your knees and just kind of slide off the branch and down you go. But this particular day, my jeans, the back of my jeans, hooked on a little nib on the branch and suddenly I found myself, I swung underneath of the branch 
Superman style, and the rope went out of my hands. And I was, I was, I was hanging there like a plate, you know, straight out, feet out, and I was frozen and terrified because if I made one flinch, I might do a face plant. I mean, it was probably as scared as I'd ever been up to my age 11. And my friends, however, now this was kind of curious. My friends had a whole different outlook on that experience. <laughs> you know, I can still remember Doc. He was, it was his nickname. Doc, I can still remember him falling down on the ground and rolling around, laughing on the, floor, on the ground, looking up at me. And of course, the other guys were laughing too. This was not funny. I was horrified. They got the swing up to me and all is well. Speaking of hanging on ropes, did you follow the story coming out of Yosemite National Park over the first of the year? Did you follow that? Wow, these two guys, 19 days fastened to the side of the biggest piece of granite in the world? I mean, these guys are outrageous. What was it Tommy Caldwell and Kevin Jorgensen were free climbing up the, what they call the dawn face. Is that the right? The dawn face of, there it is, the dawn face of El Capitan. Free climbing, which means that they were not using ropes to help them climb, but only using ropes in case they fell. You see, there's three kinds of climbing on, on rocks, I understand. One is where you use the apparatus and you literally climb with the ropes to go up and down or whatever you're doing. It's called special apparatus climbing. The kind of climbing that these two men did was called free climbing, which meant they were clinging to the rock and sometimes only thin ledges had their fingertips holding them, just like that, fingertip grips. One article said that those tiny fingertip grips were as small as a thickness of a quarter. And yet Kevin, Kevin Jorgensen was having a real problem. If you were following it, you know that he was stuck in a particular place where he couldn't advance. And he was there for an entire week trying to get this one leap. It was an eight-foot leap to the side, and he had to land on his fingertips. You can watch it on a video. You can see him do it. Over and over, his fingers, he had to take two days off just so his fingers could heal. Puts tape on it with super glue to try to pull it all together. Meanwhile, they're camping out, sleeping literally on the side of this huge cliff. Did you ever feel like you were hanging on to life by your fingertips? Did you ever find yourself in a situation where the circumstances that you find yourself on, it feels like you are barely hanging on to what your world around you? That is a horrible feeling. When you feel like you're about to fall, when you feel like there's no one holding on and that there is no guide rope to catch you if you fail. You ever feel like you were doing free solo without a without a rope or a net, those are the times when life gets real messy, when life gets real complicated, and others see it, and we know it, and we feel bad about it, and our failures are before us, and we don't like looking in the mirror because we look back at ourselves and we see our vulnerabilities and our weaknesses. 
I'm reminded of a time that wasn't all that long ago. In fact, as I was preparing this message, I looked up from my desk where I have this note. This note was stuck to the wall. It says October 12, 201 and 35 seconds in the afternoon, and it just simply says giving thanks. I was giving thanks that day for something I had not yet received. I'd already been praying for a full year that the Lord would answer this prayer. And life was getting rather desperate for my wife and I on trying to figure out how we were going to resolve certain problems. And I'm reminded that two years after I wrote this note, I was praying the same prayer, trying to resolve this tension and trying to fix this matter. I mean, look, we're in love with each other. and we're, There's not an issue there. We're just trying to figure out life and some challenges that we've been facing in our lives and our family and the way the whole work thing works and income and school and trying to juggle so many things that just did not seem to come together and we didn't have answers. Some people seem to have it all together and they don't seem to have these problems and bless them and praise God. I'm, in fact, I'm convinced that when we don't have problems, it's a good time to help those that do. <laughs> but you know, sometimes it feels like that we're hanging on to faith by our very fingertips. I mean, you gotta love Jesus because Jesus understands the, these, these delicate places of our spiritual journey. He understands them. In fact, as he journeyed in his ministry, as he moved with his disciples, he taught them from place to place and he would draw out opportunity when the moment presented itself to highlight that he understands. And you and I can look back and read the story now that he understands. And it draws our attention to a chapter in Luke 18. I want you to look with me there in this scripture. Follow along with me because we see Jesus, he gets it. He understands that people face life and all kinds of challenges. He also recognizes that there are some that are rather elusive to those challenges. And life is good and prosperous and whole for them. And that's wonderful. But not the other half of life doesn't always have it so good. Luke 18 Verse 9, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all that I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. You got to love Jesus because he sees it as it is for all of us. You gotta love Jesus because he's, he's willing to take on the healthy stuff that circulates in our soul. And he confronts it in real life and he confronts it in my personal life. And I suppose what bothers me the most about this story is when I read it, I think about people that, for which the Pharisee applies and I find myself becoming just like him. Did ever do that? You ever find the scripture suddenly being a mirror in my own? Oh. The Pharisees, according to the Seventh-day Adventist Bible commentary, essentially established the standard for righteousness. 
the way people were to live, the way they were to think, the way they were to act, the way they were to give, the way they were to attend, the way they were to focus, the way that they were to speak and teach and pray and all of those things. It was essentially righteousness by works and the Pharisaic legalistic concept of righteousness operated on the premise that salvation could be obtained by observing certain patterns of conduct and gave very little or no attention to the necessity of devotion of the heart to God and the transformation of man's motives and objectives in the life. And the Pharisees emphasized the letter of the law rather than the spirit of the law. And then there's the tax collectors. Jesus contrasts this story with tax collectors and people that represented despised individuals among the body of, of God's people, despised and considered traitors before them. And you know, the most obvious point of this, of this parable is, that, is the repulsive nature of trying to be good enough to be acceptable before God. And how that plays out and how it relates with other people. At various times, Jesus had to warn his disciples about such things. Matthew 5, for example. Luke 12. Let's be clear about something. It is a good thing to live by moral character. It is a good thing to live by moral values. It's a good thing to live by moral principles. It's a very good thing. It'll keep us healthier. It might keep us happier. It should keep us happier. Where it goes south, however, is when alignment with these values and principles somehow get confused in our minds as to helping me feel better and maybe overlook the vulnerabilities and the weaknesses that I truly have inside. That's the challenge. And so here's the problem. A life of obedience indeed is required. But instead of revealing a heart-transformed devotion, it is reduced to being measured by a tape, or worse yet, measured by somebody else. Jesus describes the experience of the tax man. It touches our hearts. Watch this. Jesus said the tax collector stood at a distance. He couldn't even feel comfortable coming into the, where the body of the people were. He stood at a distance. Jesus said he would not even look up to heaven. Which also means he did not lift up his hands to heaven. You see, the scriptures taught every faithful believer that they were to come before God. They were to come before God with praises and singing, come with adoration, and come up to Jerusalem singing the Psalms of Ascent, and to honor God and praise him, come in with holy hands and lift them up. Psalm 80 or 20, 28, verse 2. The prayer of the faithful goes like this Hear my cry for mercy as I call to you for help, as I lift up my hands toward the most holy place. Psalm 63, I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because of your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. This is the way they were commanded to come into the temple of worship, but this tax collector, he doesn't even want to come in where the people are, and he doesn't even feel comfortable looking up to heaven, much less raising his hands. 
He's so broken inside. He's so fearful. And yet he comes to the temple. He comes to the temple anyway. It's interesting. Even the New Testament, the scriptures teach us, 1 Timothy 2, verse 8, therefore I want men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. And then yet this man desperate comes to the temple looking for blessing and looking for grace and struggles to find it. There's another kind of person that prays this prayer, God be merciful to me, a sinner. You see, there are those that know their sins and know them well. There are also those, however, who don't have a long list of rebellious acts. They don't have a long list of, they're not currently engaged in something immoral or illegal, and yet they have a similar prayer. You know, it's that same kind of person who is not rebellious, but choosing to be faithful, but their life is broken, or it's complicated, or their circumstances of their marriage is in trouble. They're not reckless, they're not in some kind of a crisis necessarily, but they're lonely maybe, or maybe even depressed. The bills are coming in and they can't pay them. They don't know what the future looks like, and yet they still have the same kind of prayer because life can be out of control even when it seems like it's in control. You might have all the right stuff, you see, on the outward that everybody would see with the suit, the car, the keys, the house. You might have all those things, but that is not the way it always is inside the heart, is it? The human heart struggles to find peace with God and we fear that sometimes we're barely gripping onto the side of a ledge by our fingertips. But the gospel gives us good news. While we pray, like the psalmist who said, Lord, why are you so far away from me? Why do you hide yourself in, when I'm in trouble? Or in Psalm 4, answer me when I call to you, my righteous God. Give me relief from my distress. Have mercy on me and hear my prayer. Even though we, we pray those prayers and don't necessarily feel the presence of God, God would have you and I know that not only does he hear them, but he has the heart and the desire to extend a grace and a mercy upon whoever would dare to pray the prayer. You know, discouragement can be one of the enemies. Worst tactics. Discouragement from, robs us of hope. It robs us of joy. It robs us from our peace. It reminds us of our past. And discouragement has this painful way of causing us to mistrust God because we think we're clinging without a rope to the rock of ages. Jesus warned his disciples about this in Matthew 24, about a time of trouble coming such as never was upon the earth, and he was seeking to prepare his disciples, and you and me too, that such days are going to be repeated in our time. We understand that this might be called the time of Jacob's trouble, a time when Jacob, only by faith did he cling to God's promise, confessing his sins, wanting to be right with God, but not knowing that he was held in the grip of grace, not knowing that he was suspended in grace and secure and impossible to fall. Jesus spoke very encouragingly to his disciples in John 14, just days before the cross. Jesus said to his disciples, do not 
Do not let your heart be troubled. Don't even go there. Don't go there because you are held in the grip of grace. You are suspended in grace. When the devil reminds you of your past, remind him of his future, right? Push back is appropriate. <laughs> Push it back. There's a $10 word I learned in my undergraduate studies. It's called inaugurated and consummated eschatology. Don't try to think about that. But I do want to tell you what it means. What it means is what God declares, even though it may be in the future, it's as true now, even though it did not yet happen. Got it? So what he says about the future, what he says that will be, you can believe it now as if it already is. And so when he declares you righteous and holy because you've confessed your sins to God and you come before him in faith, even though you may not have finished every part of the growing you want to do in this life, you can know that you're declared holy in him as if you've already attained to it. And that's why he can call you citizens of heaven. That's why he can call you sons and daughters of God. This is why he can declare you children of God. This is why the Bible calls believers saints, because they see themselves and understand themselves to be the people of God on the way to becoming the fully mature people of God. Does that make sense? He's inaugurated you to know this grace, so do not let your heart be troubled. Jesus said, also, John 16, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I've overcome the world. Look, I've got this thing under control, he's saying. He said, I got it. Don't worry, I got it. Okay, I've got the rope. I've got you. You're not going to fall. I've got you. Have you come to worship feeling like the tax collector today? It was a rough week, a business failure, a struggle at home. The enemy of your soul would have you be distracted about such things. He's in the full-time business of making people feel bad about themselves. What's fascinating also about this story is what Jesus does not say at the end. Uh, it, is, it is wonderful that he says that the tax man went home justified rather than the other, but what he does not say is there's no more, you don't hear anything else about the story about either of these two men that went home. The tax collector came feeling pretty good about himself. I'm sorry, the Pharisee came feeling pretty good about himself. The tax collector, on the, on the other hand, felt horrible about himself. You see, unlike the stories in Luke, where the, where the shepherd finds the lost sheep, and declares to everyone, come, let's celebrate. I found the lost sheep. We've got to party. Or like the lost coin. The lady who finds her lost coin calls for a celebration. Come on, let's celebrate. The coin which I lost is found. And just like the parable of the lost son, we had to celebrate because that which was lost is found. But this story doesn't end that way, does it? It just simply is a pronouncement of Jesus 
I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. And this man, no doubt, did not feel any different when he left the temple than when he arrived. But what he didn't know is that he was suspended in grace, fastened to the rock of ages, secure as anyone could be. He might go home troubled, but he can go home triumphant. You and I know it because we read the story. And I believe it's written for you and I so that we might know that when we cry out in the same prayer, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And we have the long list of things we could put up and just say, here it is, God. And he knows it anyway, right? It's not what it's about. It's about whether we've got a heart that's receptive to the love and the grace of God and the transformation that's available to us. Oh, that's good news. It's good news. It's such good news. Let's just wrap this up with a couple of key points, okay? Number one, coming to the temple is still the best thing you can do when you have a heavy heart. When you're getting up in the morning or where you're thinking about attending worship and you're not feeling well or you're not emotionally strong or the best place to be is here in the house of God where there are people who love the Lord as you need to be loved. There are people here who, want to, who are willing to pray with you. You see, we don't always make it known because we have a tendency when we're in those situations to you know, stand in the back where nobody is and, uh, and not even to look up to heaven. You know? Or we don't lift up holy hands. No one knows, right? I believe that when a person makes the decision to be in the house of God, that it's a gesture to God that I'm here for a blessing, Lord. I'm here because I want you to know I need you. Regardless of whatever else is going on around the place, I'm here because I need you. And it's a testimony of our, of our need. That's why worship is so important. Matthew 11, Jesus said, come to me all you are weary and burdened and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me for I'm gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. The second point I just want to draw out briefly is that this Pharisee, you know, living like a Pharisee, having a great list of prohibitions and accomplishments, you know, it, it really gains nothing for anyone really. You know, in the end of our life, it just, it, it really means nothing. It's dead. And Jesus draws that contrast out and there's only one solution for it and that is for our, our attention to be turned to the cross of Christ. Romans 5, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will a man die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, say it with me, Christ died for us. While we're still sinners, Christ died for us. While we're in our need, he let us, he saved us. While we were broken, he came to save us. While we're in our mess and our crisis and hanging on by our fingernails, he came to save us. And without realizing it, we've been held in his hand the whole time. A lesson from the publican that there is really only one difference between these two men. Just one difference. Who knows what it is? Just one difference between these two men. Both are sinners, right? What's the difference? One knew their need and the other one didn't. It's just that simple. 
we would do well to examine ourselves to see if we are indeed in the grace of God. A fourth point is that being suspended in the grace of God is the safest place that anyone can be even if they don't feel like it. Sometime, sometimes it feels like our life is out of control and sometimes we struggle with our failures in front of us and sometimes it might feel like no one notices or sees or is sensitive to this, my circumstances. Again from the Psalms, verse six, or chapter six, have mercy on me, Lord, for I am faint. Heal me, Lord, for my bones are in agony. My soul is in deep anguish. How long, O Lord? And the Lord's answer right back to you by faith in his word and his promises. You are held in the grip of grace. And the last point I want to bring to you is not coming from the text. It doesn't emerge there, so forgive me for that. However, I think it begs the question that somehow this man left, it's not in the story, but perhaps we could write the ending of the story that no one would ever leave a sanctuary or a Sabbath school class, be it our children's departments or be it our senior saints or in the balcony or on these pews or in the booth where the men and women operate, the equipment that makes the services happen here, that no one would ever leave without being encouraged in the grace of God. And that they would know that they could experience this from an outstretched hand and a meaningful hug that they matter and that you're forgiven. You know, you can tell someone that. You can tell someone that they're forgiven, not because you can forgive them necessarily for God, but because God declared it that way. It's not as though we're offering absolution. You and I can't do that. But if they believe that, you could say, you're forgiven. You want to turn to somebody and say that? I mean, you're forgiven. Ladies and gentlemen, you're forgiven and suspended in God's grace regardless how you feel today. And so where today is your security? Where's your security?